Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is Dr. Carl Goldcamp talking. So today I want to cover basically the end of a four-part series in which I talked about how do we know what our diet's about, right? So last time I went into the anthropology and to a degree, a little bit of the archaeology, mostly anthropology. How do we know based on fossil evidence and the evolutionary of hominids? Now you should know that word if you heard about last week, hominids and the different varieties of hominids and how we are homo sapiens today. Very fascinating. Linked you to a couple of which I think are really good speakers, to give you some background on it. I hope you sort of feasted on that. And before that, we looked into the comparative anatomy of the gastrointestinal tract of basically 70 different mammals and saying, who are we similar to and who did we evolve from? And from that, we realized we're actually more similar to those who we evolved with, cats and dogs, man's best friend, and not to our ancestral closest ancestral ancestors, which are the other primates, chimpanzees and similar of the great apes as well. Well, that was interesting. Uh, We didn't go deep into microbiome. That would have been the bacterial and the viral similarities and differences. Um, They are kind of goes along with the the, uh, anatomical comparison, the evolution there. We'll we'll leave it at that. We, We personally have, I've done stool testing on a number of different levels, viral, bacterial, and so on. And it can get pretty complicated. And I don't think anybody really would be that uh, interested in going to that level of depth. Uh, but it's fun and you get to see patterns. And the reports that come back are color-coded so you can understand the big pictures and see how things have changed, especially if it's before and after antibiotic. That you'll say, oh my gosh, look at these. And it's bacterial primarily that you're looking at changes. So now we're going to the last quadrant of that. And we're looking at genome. So in essence, our genes. So the basis of our genes, we have two chromosomes, right? One from mom and one from dad. And they give us a kind of redundancy. You have the same gene or a variety of the same gene on the same uh, allele. And so depending on how those genes are activated, and what I mean is this, it in certain in certain sets, certain couplets of those genes, they will express one element as a combination, a little bit of the one from mom and a little bit of the one from dad. The other, it will take the dominant and the other will be, you know, you've heard about dominance for recessive. I'm not going to go into all that genetics, but there's a variation of how those couplets of genes from mom and dad uh, come to be expressed in you. And they're not all about the same method. There's others, you have codominance. Codominance would be the color of your eyes. So that's genetics, pretty pure and simple genetics. So when we talk about genome, genome is something that we, you know, the the human genome I think was completed in, was it early 2000s, late 1990s? Anyways, it was phenomenal to, to think that you now have this string of all of the human genome. So from there, we started to discover, well, there's a variation of certain genes, not just one and two, there's maybe 27 or 57 different types of that. Um, the idea of now we're looking at mutations 
And so the most dominant or the most popular form of that particular gene is called the wild type. You would think the wild type would be the esoteric one, but no wild type. They go, hey, the wild type means you have the majority uh, gene for that, at least in one, you know, it, it could be wild type from mom and wild type from dad, So, but they call it wild type. So outside of the wild type, and there's only one wild type of whatever gene we're talking about, everything else is a variation of that. And so that would be called a mutation. And so when we get to a thing called SNPs, singular, single, nuclear polymorphism, SNP, that means you have one nucleotide different than all of just off by one. It's not off by many. So it's a pretty simple mutation, just off by one nucleotide. I won't go into what nucleotides are, not a genetics class. So it's a pretty simple. So just on that one off, there's a lot of variations. So the function of that particular gene we're looking at may be hugely affected by just one change, and it may be affected by only a little bit. So we look at things like methylation and other aspects or genes that have to do with how we methylate. Just take that word for what it is. It's a function. You know, it. we now know enough to say this particular gene is going to slow down the function slow down from the wild type a lot or a little. So now we have a way of ballparking the effect of these genes relative to what we know about that mutation from the wild type. Okay? So wild type's the norm, if you will. Nobody wants to call it the norm because that means if you have a mutation, you're abnormal. And we're all abnormal on some of our genes. And you sort of look at those genes. So all right, that's the big picture. So ideally, you have this long string of, yes, it's 23 chromosomes, but on a particular chromosome, you have a lot of different genes in there. And so it goes on for miles. And the way it's put together is fascinating and so on and so forth, but it's a lot of information. It's not just something you can put up on your wall. It fills uh, miles of these things. So when we talk about genome, the worth of talking about genome, for one, it's a lot of information, a lot of information, unfathomable amount of information. So some people will say, oh, do I have the gene for such and such and I should eat Brussels sprouts as opposed to avocados? I'm just totally made that up. And I mean, that's how nuanced this is. There's industries now, there's companies now, and we're going to go over this. I'm going to name some companies, neither good nor bad. I'm saying this is their business model, and this is what they do for that money you send them, and this is what they hope to give back to you. So, I mean, I think it's good to have both eyes open. But let me go back to my experience on this. So back when I started practicing, 1999, graduated in 98, that's the last century, Okay. So before anybody just like wants to email me that, oh, you're from the last century, that in uh, 2002 or three, I started independently on my, when I do my lab requisitions, that is, hey, these are the labs that I want this patient to do. And they would go off to Quest, was the dominant lab in the area for the longest time. And then LabCorp came in and I said, these are the, these are the tests and they would be covered by insurance. So it was between them and their insurance company. And um, I had learned to add simply MTHFR. This is a long time ago, 2001, two, and three. Why did I do that? Only because a, a book that I was reading or using as kind of a clinical guide for autism is called um, Biomedical Treatments for Autism. And in the last page, they would give, these are all the things that uh, people have used for their children, and this is the ratio of uh, improvement versus non-improvement. And so MTHFR, which I started hearing about at some of the conferences that I was attending then, functional medicine, before it was called functional medicine. So I thought, you know, why don't I just start ordering this? You know, either I thought of, first I thought it was going to be a problem. You know, is the insurance company going to cover it? How expensive will it be? So they covered it. So then I started doing it for everybody. <laughs> it didn't matter what you had. Um, and uh, But the first aha came is that for every child that I saw, I'm going to cough. For every child that I saw that was on the spectrum, 
So the spectrum is not just autism, it's really everything from dyslexia to autism, Asperger's and various grade, gradations in between, that they were at least heterozygous, but most were homozygous for MTHFR. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And relative to uh, women and men that I was taking it for totally unrelated issues, uh, that often they were not MTHFR, it was really pretty focused. It was like, that's disproportionate for autistic kids. So then that got me interested. So this is well before 23andMe. So I started taking it. So I was saying, well, it's interesting. What do you do with MTHFR? At that point, you would get supplements called uh, methylating factors from various companies like uh, Thorne or Designs for Health or whatever, which are still around and good companies. I like them, still order for them. Um, and for some, it made a difference. And for some, they felt terrible. So there were still like, oh, these people that have, so the MTHFR was a gene, it was a mutation, right? It's not the wild type, it's a mutation. It's actually the name of the gene. And then the the, the uh, mutation they would have would be C677T or um, A12, I forgot the rest of the numbers, but anyways, two different variations. One was what I have, which is very slow. I'm dyslexic, by the way, and I'm homozygous for that. And so is my wife, by the way. And so uh, they were very, very, what they call slow methylators. And so therefore, you would think people like us would be taking these methylation methylating factors and we'd all be better. And we, but it didn't work that way. You know, it was it was not that black and white. Hey, you just need this. That's good. And then um, that whole MTHFR became almost like a, a chorus of, of course, we test for MTHFR. Well, what do you do for, do with it after that? Uh, then it came into, oh, what you needed was methylated folic acid or folate, and you needed methylated B12. And that made some sense, but that was based on a, there was no, no studies and still are no studies to support that. But if you look at whatever your supplements are, should you take supplements and you'll look at the B vitamins in the background, in the back, you're not going to see cyanocobalamin for B12 anymore. You're going to see uh, methylated B12. You're going to see methylated folic acid. And it's going to be a little patented, um, you know, a trademark on both of those. So whether that's, and so in doing all the research, there is actually no evidence that that is better. A little bit of, so, but the idea that you needed more B12 and folic acid was important and you should have a, a, a natural form that you actually got from real living plants and or animals and, you know, away you go. Uh, synthetic B12 and um, folic acid would get these people in trouble and not a good thing to have. And by the way, since this is the keto naturopath, what does this have to do with anything? Well, we're going to get to that in bits and pieces. Um, the highest source of B12, cyanocobalamin, are, we're waiting, do you think it's plant-based? Do you think it's broccoli? Do you think it's beef liver? Do you think it's chicken liver? Do you think it's oysters? Do you think it's clams? Anyways, the answer is... It's shellfish, shellfish very specifically of clams, uh, mussels. Do I think, is it mussels more than oysters, more than uh, cohogs, more than steamers? I'm not sure, but I know that cohogs and oysters are pretty high there. And even mussels, they're all pretty much neck and neck, but that's the highest source of B12 and folic acid of anything you could eat on earth. After that, it would be livers. Pretty much anybody's liver will do. So whether it's chicken liver or beef liver, I think beef has it marginally better and is calves better than beef. You know, you're splitting hairs. Just have your liver. That's why liver is considered a superfood because it's a good source of that. So it's a real source. It's not synthetic. So there's your first tip. And also uh, egg yolk would be another one. So there you go. You got the top of the list and um, it's organ meat or egg yolk or shellfish. It gives you a little bit of a hint of our ancestral diet, right? That, well, wait a minute, if uh, we need these things, it ends up that um, before I got into uh, the genome work, and now we're just on one gene, before I started doing that, is that probably the, the easiest thing or the most common symptom to treat, sign to treat, would be B12 deficiency. You'd measure that by 
by lab tests. And then we come in and you give them injections in their butt for B12. And they'd feel good for a while. And ideally, they'd be changing their diet. So they wouldn't need these shots in their butt. Um, so that was pretty common in for a kind of a deficiency population-wise, wide. And so that's really interesting because... You go, why is that? Well, it's because people stopped eating real food, for one, but they stopped eating the foods they evolved from. And there's a great book by Dr. Conane, which is Survival of the Fattest, which uh, he spends a lot of time and work into really mapping out and researching that humanoids or hominids evolved along first from uh, aqua, uh, that is uh, lakes and rivers to ocean. And so the populations along the oceans really provided much more fat and intense minerals and uh, nutrients, cofactors, if you will, or vitamins. And so it wasn't until we started uh, living on the seashore diet could we evolve and get to be have a fat brain. They have a big brain and therefore more functions and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty interesting, huh? So that goes back to that. You know, what are the highest sources of the things we need? They come from the seashore. And we can get right into essential fatty acids, aka fish oils, omega-3 and 6s. They come from, well, fish, but actually more marine fish than freshwater fish. So there's that as a little bit of an aside. Okay, so we're talking about genomes. So now we know you have a variety of, of any given gene. You have a variety of mutations, which may not be worse. It may not be better. It just means you're not in the majority of what people have, the, the so-called normal or so-called wild type, right? Some slow down a particular function if they have to do with an enzyme. Others may possibly improve it. I've never heard that, by the way, but because usually you're working at the things that are problematic. Okay, so now you have that as a general understanding that, so what do we do with all this? Well, what has evolved was a couple of years after I started adding a few other genes as I learned about these genes, you know, one gene at a time, you know, at that rate, I'd probably be uh, never doing everybody's genes completely, just the ones that came up and that were associated with various problems. And, um, but I thought I was clever in doing that and uh, not many people were doing it, but enough were to make it popular enough. So 23andMe came out and said, hey, we will take your saliva and we will spit out your genome and we will run it through the computer and we'll come back with a report that's going to say, you have these genetic mutations and it would then, um, initially they sort of rank them. I would be worried about this, but this is what you, these are the supplements you can take to treat these particular genes. And these are the supplements you can take to treat these other particular genes. Well, then the federal government got involved and said, hey, you can't do that. So they cut off their privilege to convey that kind of information to you. Instead, they allowed 23andMe for, I don't know how many years, or has it been 10 years? Then, uh, to simply give you the ancestral information you know, 1% of you comes from North Africa, 70% comes from Scandinavia and wherever it is, right? And so you go, oh, that's interesting. So you'd find out, you know, where your genes came from. So, but all in all, that that saliva um, results of all your genes, of your genome, was called your raw data. So then other companies started, first they started on an app basis and they still are on an app basis that is if you could download your raw data from 23andme and then send them over a file they would run it through their program and their program will give you what 23andme used to do but better they would say all right these are so there's your whole genome and it you know you can get two three five hundred page reports on this and it would be leave you blindingly numb to go through all that. So um, one company I like a little more than others, but I, 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 I'm really not trying to pick out one over the other, just give you the general idea, is that it sort of summarizes it down to your top 80 genes that are more problematic than others. I mean, if it left you with so many thousands of genes, you'd be 
you'd be toast. You know, it'd be useless. And usually that's what happens. So I will go over this. I'm going to take a break, come back and line up on the the computer, various companies, and I'll read this to you. But here's the business model there. The business model used to be that everybody had to rely on that raw data from 23andMe. You know, send it over to them. And then company A, B, or C was spit out your particular report of all the things you needed. Uh, Usually they want to prescribe you their set of supplements based on your results sounds pretty clever but it's not there there's in my view there is nowhere where near enough information to be that comprehensive however there is enough information on certain areas to be fairly comfortable by saying these are treatable mutations so people are going to have ordinary lives and they're associated with various things that 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 don't have to be conditions you know if you take these supplements or change your diet in a certain way that have these uh, nutrients in it, you can avoid certain common problems. I'll give you some examples later. So that was the business model. Hey, 23andMe, we spit you out a simple report or a complicated report or a tome, whatever you want to pay for. And the cost is from $50 to three and four and $5,000 is the most expensive one. I've, you know, really nuanced report and saying, these are the things you should do. And these are the pills you should take and this is how you should change your diet and this is the best time of day to exercise it goes on and on um i think for those very advanced reports um advanced i don't want to use words uh not necessarily advanced but very large uh reports they will just uh paralyze your life if you really are going to go by all the things that you need to do i mean clearly it, it used to be that People were afraid of, well, maybe I'll find out I have a gene that's untreatable and I I have this rare cancer that that only goldfish in Africa get and I I got it. Well, no, you don't get that information. I mean, that nobody comes away with that information. And so I would say, don't worry about it. You're you're not going to come out and your chance with cancer is uh, they don't, they don't spill it to you in that regard. And I don't think anybody looks for that. If you had genes for cystic fibrosis, you'd know it. If you had genes for BRAC1 and BRAC2, certain breast cancers, you'd know that already, I hope. I mean, it would be in your family. You'd have a family history of that. So the, the certain things would be obvious by now. But um, how you detoxify certain things um, would not be obvious. And those things are pretty helpful to know. I wouldn't plan my whole life there, but if you're one who's drinking a lot of alcohol and you find that you have genes in your liver that are really not great for metabolizing it, causing a lot of other problems, and there are ways that you can easily find out about this, then maybe you might want to try things a little bit differently. That's where I put it. There's a way you can use this information, very useful without, you know, paralyzing your life. And um, let's say we go into Alzheimer's, you know, we have, we are so much about APOE. So APOE is the... Um, chromosome and the gene, then you have a variation. So you go APOE, you know, um, one, one, two, two, three, three. And the one, and the, the one, one is the one from mom and the one from dad. So you can have one, two, one, three. So they have up to four. And so the people that are, are, have the highest association with Alzheimer's. So I should say dementia is the APOE four, four. Okay, then. But the fascinating thing about the APOE four, four that is, right? From, you have the exact same gene on both mom and dad's chromosomes, so you're homozygous, that uh, there's an evolution. I mean, there's a, now you bring into the evolution here what gene showed up when and you know what relevance do they have. That adds a whole other dimension, dimension uh, that really makes this fascinating. So for instance, for that, what they find with the APOE gene is that, and now we, I said there was up to four, so there's four different types and the the 4-4 was the one that is most problematic for dementia. Well, they find about 10,000 years ago that they call it the advent of agriculture in the Middle East. The uh, We've talked about that in a number of podcasts. So some genes adapted a little bit that they could take in carbs. That's where carbs came into our life uh, anthropologically. And hopefully you got that out of last podcasts and all that. So now that you, uh, there are some people that could modify and they could adapt over the years, centuries, subsequent millennia that 
some carbs didn't bother them much at all. Not saying processed foods, processed foods weren't around, right? But there are some genes, some people, genes did not evolve. So they stayed called the old-fashioned, the pre-agricultural genes. So the ApoE44 are the pre-agricultural genes. So, so now you put the pre-agricultural genes, ApoE44, and you put them into a culture that is getting more and more carbs, in part because the big animals are hunted out. Uh, now they're into uh, cultivating wheat and all sorts of cereals, wheat, rye, sorghum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's a lot of carbs, whereas before there wasn't. So they have a tough time adapting. So they're the, they're the most vulnerable in that population making that dietary change. However, now with the information we have, those people are most spectacularly benefited by a carnivorous diet, a diet that rolled them back before the agriculture, you know, is not having any carbs or very few carbs. So that in essence is the ketogenic diet, by the way, is that, um, low carb. So I would say low carb and low fat for the most part. And so hence carnivore, not too stuck with the, the uh, nomenclature of the different dietary approaches, but the evolution of, and so consequently you now have a spectacular opportunity to reverse to an extent one's prognosis, if you will, one's chances of getting severe dementia by changing their diet back. And we talked about Dr. Mary Newport's, but you can remember way back when we talked to uh, Dr. Chris Palmer and his and his uh, father's change, when he changed his diet was incredible, absolutely incredible. So there you go. That explains that. I don't know if his father was ApoE44, but you now can explain remarkable changes when somebody does change over to a low-carb or no-carb, low-fat uh, diet, maybe high-fat than low-fat, um, and get tremendous changes. It all now makes sense, providing the brain wasn't already damaged enough and all that. So now you see how it goes. There is some relevancy. They're clearly, ApoE44 is clearly relevant to know what that is. And a lot of people, so, you know, uh, Crick and Watson, who were the ones who, in the, I think it was 54, um, got the Nobel Prize for the delineation of the double helix of your DNA. Well, Dr. Watson never wanted to be told if he was ApoE44. He just didn't want to know about it. So, Somehow he kept that information from his life. Right now, that's how bad he thought that was. Uh, right now, that's not that bad. That's information you could use, and ideally that would be motivation for you to have a diet that's primarily carnivorous. You know, in the very least, there's something you do about that, and you'll be sensationally uh, benefited by that, by knowing that information. Okay, so now you can go on to a lot of other genes, a lot of other mutations. Uh, these SNPs have become... You know, companies saying, hey, we're going to take your, now Now you no longer have to only go to 23andMe, by the way. you They will take, other companies will take their saliva, they'll do, spit out their particular report. You know, computers make it pretty easy for all these people to do this. And so, and they will spit out their kind of genes and their sort of dietary recommendations. It all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And so like, what's wrong with that particular outcome? I've never really seen it work. And having been sort of part of this evolution along the way, I certainly understand the business model. And let me tell you, there are anybody who can get to selling supplements on a regular basis, you know, uh, hey, buy my brand because I'm the best, be it fish oil or vitamin D or echinacea, you name it, you know, they'll do well. That's why these supplement companies make a lot of money. So that's what they're trying to do. And that's where their cash cow is, is on the back end selling you the supplements. Nothing's wrong with that. That's just how it is. I think you can oversell people and I think you avoid, most people do not like to have their health based on their culinary abilities. They don't want to cook. They want reach in the fridge and you get it. You buy it packaged and ready and you know keep it to the pizza level. Well, that's disastrous as you obviously know by now, if you've been listening to me. So um, that's that. That's fine. So I'm going to read you some of these companies. Um, I'm going to stop and 
go on the internet and say, you know, this is what this is, just so you sort of see that. It's a real thing. Anybody can do it. I'll show you what we use. You don't have to do it our way. But I also want to say that this is, because it's the fourth quadrant, I think it's important to say that, you know, the, the question be before these four pieces were put in place was, you know, does this help us identify what our diet should be? And I think to an extent, yes, take the APOE44 as an example. Yes, it does. It points back to being uh, carnivorous. That's now becoming a common word. Did you know that? Or carnivory. Never heard that word before a couple of years ago. So that speaks, and that's pretty much where we are right now. And yet we were very much uh, vegetarian, probably 15, uh, more than 15 years ago uh, in the 90s thinking that was the way to go. That's pretty much what I had learned in school for the most part. And, um, but, but the problem is, I think that you can, I think that most anybody will benefit from our carnivorous diet. I've not met many exceptions to that. And we do use genome. We do do a genome report as part of our program for this particular reasons. We look at clusters. We look at certain, I call them ecosystems, interrelated areas, nodes of interrelated genes that you go, you know, there could be a problem with uh, neurotransmitters here in this person. How can I get in and change some of that? So I look at the, we look at the dietary approach and we look at maybe they will have to have some supplements, but I can't base it just solely on that report. It has to be reflected in their hormone report. That's a whole nother one. Right, that was a, a basically a twenty-four hour ur sequential urine collection that allows me to look at a lot of different hormones. Um, we also look at intracellular micronutrient levels. You know, where are there some frank deficiencies that can be treated? And then, of course, we do a big panel right up front of a lot of tests that allow me to see, are there any problems? I mean, do I see any obvious problems that can correlate with some of these things that of these genomic areas that I think I can reach in and treat pretty quickly? If they don't need to be treated, I'm not gonna treat them. I'm gonna say, interesting, it looks, according to this, like you have a certain predisposition, but I don't see that predisposition expressed in your lab work. Now, there's not a lot of, nor in that person's story. So if they don't have whatever the association may be, a sleep problem, a arthritis problem, a, a weight problem, an insulin problem, a diabetes problem, a autoimmune problem. If they don't have these things, then their life is going pretty well. And if their inflammatory markers are minuscule, life is going pretty well. Why would I treat something that's not there? So I use that as part of the picture. And I think that's really important. So as opposed to the companies, and this is kind of where I come into opposition to their, their use of their materials. One is they're not medically trained. They went in and they learned, you know, these are the SNPs. When this person comes in with SNPs, singular nuclear polymorphism, when if somebody comes in with this particular SNP, they need to take this particular su supplement. I think that verges on being dishonest and a little bit too um, simplistic. And also it, it's fear-based. You know, if you go to a man or woman, Bob or Martha, and say, Bob, you know, you have this gene even though your blood work was fine and your hormones are okay and you don't seem to be very deficient in other you know, intracellular micronutrients, you still should take this anyway. Um, I'd go, why would they take that anyway if everything else was fine? So that's my disagreement. Um, we go to a company that's that does take the 23andMe, you know, report, I, it's done easily, it's done quickly, it's relevant it's got some great graphs. It's good teaching. There's something that I can teach from to explain to these people what they've, what the report says. And uh, that's a benefit to me and benefit to the person. They don't need a three or four or 500 page, you know, multiple notebooks of how they should live their life. I think that's too much. And I think that will result in no positive action at all other than the weight on the desk of the paper. Okay, so let's get to some of these companies for a second. Give me a sec. Before I go on to that, I wanted to back up just a, just a little bit to explain that when you get these SNPs on your report, is that you, you know, they all have this report and they give you this nice story about the relevance of this SNP that you have to you. You also can independently 
certainly go to PubMed, you know, so you can put in, and every SNP is a number, by the way. But having said that, this has become so overwhelmingly popular in the last decade that there's a thing called SNPedia, which is capital S-N-P, SNP, and then EDIA, E-D-I-A. Pop in SNPedia, and then you'll get your number. It's usually an RS-53576, or, you know, RS, and then followed by a number. You pop that in, and it's going to say, these are the, this is what we know so far about that gene. These are the studies that have been done on that, and you'll find how there's a, a lack of really depth on most of these pieces of information. One of the genes that seems to terrorize people more, and it's not MTHFR and the related ones, that's getting to be sort of a ho-hum story. Interesting though, that is what they call about COMT, which is a gene that methylates neurotransmitters, estrogen in particular. So people go, oh, I'm a slow COMT, COMT, Compt methylator because of the gene itself. But this is where I like the hormone panel that I do. I can tell if in reality, if they're slow or not, you know, this whole problem is like, and say, well, if I'm a slow compt methylator for estrogen in particular, um, and neurotransmitters in general, what does that put me at risk for? Well, the implication was if you're a slow compt methylator, you're at risk, increased risk for, uh, breast cancer. If you're a woman. And I don't, there are some reports on that, but you look look at, put it in the context of what's actually happening. And the problem with this research, and here's the core of the core of the core, the problem with the research is done on a population that was on the standard American diet. So they had these, those genes of those people that were evaluated somehow, um, had those results. When you change the diet, you change the outcome. So it's a little bit like the dementia story I gave with APOE44. And so there's a lot of stories that way. So I yawningly go, yeah, oh, really? Oh, it's associated with that. In what sort of population? So, uh, but anyway, I wanted to let you know there was a thing called SNPpedia. You can go do your own research and you can dive in and say, oh, I, I have this SNP and this is what it means. I would say no, because the population they extracted this information from was on a processed food, standard American diet, and therefore, of course, you're going to expect problems. Change their diet, you're going to change and change the outcomes. And in essence, that future hypothetical population I'm talking about is really the population you should be looking at. What if they ate well and didn't eat processed food? What if they dropped their carbs down to zero or under 20 a day? What if they dropped that their fats were good, they were fish oils and... Um, natural oils that came in their, their meats and their fish. And that was the end of their fat. It's like, Hmm, that would totally change people's lives. Whether that sounds appetizing to you or not, I just hit that. You know, if you change those factors, you're going to change health and you're going to change the outcome. So that's why I don't, I don't put a lot of faith into snippopedia. Not that it's not earnest not that it's not clever. Um, that it's just not well backed up and is backed up in a couple of generations of poor nutrition. There you go. All right, back to showing you some companies. I'll just jump in. So here's one that has a great 19-page free report, uh, a an example report that goes over some genes and it has gorgeous pictures of diets, you know, of of chicken with uh, avocado and salads, and you know, and they're saying, well, with these. These particular genes are choosing to go over, um, and they're explaining what a gene is and what a SNP is, and so on and so forth. And then they go through specific genes, and um, and they're saying, well, this diet would benefit this particular gene. I don't think they can go in that direction, but I will say this, and I hope you're like me. It is a really fascinating story to read about these genes. You know what they call the the FUT gene, FTO gene. Read about that one. You say, well, you need these particular vitamins, and it's not that it's untrue. It's just that it's untrue in a person that's getting these things. Anyway, um, and so it, it comes up, it gives you good documentation, great diagrams, and you know your recommendation, high total carbohydrates. Recommendation, high fiber. Recommendation, moderate sugar. Um, this is just the sample report. I would say balderdash. You know, I, that's why I look at, 
if anybody did these things with high carbs, let me see, even if they're vegetarian, let me see their blood work and their labs. And I don't really care, you know, what they're doing. In addition to that, I bet that they're going to have problems. So anyway, 19 page report, very convincing, great to read on, you know, it makes you want to be a believer in this, but it's oversold and, and it comes up with, yeah, you should take omega-3s. Well, we all need to take omega-3s or go back and live in the, in the ocean and have seafood on a regular basis, which nobody does. And that's part of a problem. So there's that. So that company's uh, name was called Geno Palette and eating for your genes. Pretty cool. Uh, interesting read. Who else can I go to? Um, I am going to go to, oh, come on. This is, oh, there's another company out there, which is actually pretty popular. It's called Nutritional Genome. And people, it's actually uh, part owner is a naturopath and uh, they're tied into, they've done really good marketing and tying it to the right people. Um, they do have a great page and I love the stories of the different genes and they make it very user-friendly actually. And they're, they're uh, about how many pages? It's a, is an 80 or hundred page report. Good luck with that. Um, but they have an online, obviously you've paid the, for the rights to use it online and you can go read, you know, at length about the different genes that you have in your report. And they now have it that they will send you their um, saliva collection. You don't have to go through 23andMe and then send them the raw file. You could if you want to. And so that runs for about um, three to $500. So that's depending where you are. Um, I find that's the same. They're at the lower end of the fancier companies. How's that? The company that I use is called Strategene. It was also started by a naturopath um, who about five or six years after I was uh, very much familiar with all this. He was smart enough to start a company. So he deserves all the credit. But what I like about that company is cheap enough. It's the price is cheap enough and it has some good diagrams. I can use them for, um, illustrative purposes for my clients or my patients. And, uh, that's a big leg up. So I like his presentation. The report is only 14 pages. So it calls out the 70 70 or 80 genes that are most appropriate. And that's fine with me. If went any more than that, you'd lose everybody and, and nobody would take any action on it. So I like that company a lot. And there's, you know, there's uh, Prometheus used to be a free company. It's now bought out by somebody or other. So there's a lot of consolidation in this business model of companies buying companies because they see the, uh, the money's there. So uh, interesting, you know, the whole idea of your, well, it comes down to my whole pitch about bio-individuality, but it takes it, I think, to an extreme to the point that it imprisons people. You got to be on these supplements. You know, you got to be on these supplements. So I think appropriate supplementation, by the way, is spot on, given the things we've talked about, those four areas. And you need to have people, you know, what they call it, um, raise up, raise up their culinary skills. They need to know how to make meat taste good. You know, we smoke meats at least a couple times a week. We uh, are becoming connoisseurs. We dry meat in our fridge. And so we have, we've learned more about prepping meat and fish and chicken and so on. And um, some of the byproducts as well. You know, uh, Judy's making a carbless bagels from all the egg yolks that we have after separating out the egg whites. I mean, these are just fun things you can do. But I think that skill set, people need to come back to their kitchen to an extent to know what is good food, what is real food, and just keep the processed food out of their lives as much as possible. And that's not even going on my dairy, anti-dairy tangent. Um, so what are they? So those are other companies. So they're out there and you now see what they do. I'm not saying they're bad or wrong. I'm giving you my take why I think it's excessive and I think it could be paralyzing for people. And I now, for instance, just today in our Facebook group, I'm going to go to that to give you an example because I think that's valuable. So uh, here's a comment, which is a, a really smart question to ask. And yet it makes it seem like all this is pretty simple. So 
Somebody said, talk to me about glutathione production. How do you know if you're making enough? That would be a lab test. Uh, what SNPs can affect it? That's a smart question. How can you increase production? Papers I need to read. Uh, I'm all in on the biochemistry and ways to hack it properly. I've seen where a proper diet for your body changes the landscape dramatically. Clearly. So I map things out saying it's not just a one and done. Oops, you got this little, take the labs. You know, So the labs will say, if you are already very low in inflammatory markers, you're doing just fine for your genes. Um, however, then I said, hey, there's companies you can go and you can get all this information out. And I listed that. So I'm just saying that the, the company, the company, the question comes up periodically. Um, somebody also commented about a week or so, hey, I'm a, a slow comped methylator you know, which I've told you about before. It's like, so her life is about what she's been dubbed. Also, she has a history of breast cancer. So this all sort of rings true. But what she needs to get is a good hormone panel, like I've told you about, and do these other contextual things and not live in a partial paralysis of, oh, I have this gene. I have to be careful of this. I shouldn't be doing these other things. So context is really important. And that's exactly what you do not get when you just do this particular test and bet your life on it, so to say. So now I want to lead to, you know, this whole thing is keto naturopath. We've been talking about genome and how is it relevant? Well, they're starting to do some labs on people on the ketogenic diet, which means you're fat adapted, right? So ketogenic diet, let's be straightforward. Ketogenic diet is not being high analysis. It's dropping the carbs. Initially, people drop it and they drop it to 20 or less per day. And that's sort of a, a crutch. They got a number and they can measure it. They can go on their app, chronometer or my fitness pal or whatever their thing is. And they can measure it. That's how they get some started. And then they can stop doing that and just live life. Okay. But what they did is they dropped their carbs and they did it slowly. So they allowed themselves to adapt, to adapt to burning fat. And ideally, you know, and here's where there's a big problem you get a lot of advice you should have a high fat diet no you shouldn't have a high fat diet you should drop the carbs and then just have the fat in your diet you know change you over and you will become fat adapted um and the trick is that it took us a long time to lose is because there's so much misinformation in this keto world out there about high fat there's no such thing as high fat adapt to fat. Your body will do it naturally when you subtract the carbs and do that gradually. Otherwise, some people go through what they call the keto flu. But anyway, so that's it. But what they find for those who have a prolonged ketogenic diet, meaning you're fat adapted times many months, is that your methylation, um, you're, you're a, a better methylator. Uh, the one study that I've seen uh, actually showed there was increase in methylation when people are on a ketogenic diet. Now, why is methylation a big deal? You've heard that a couple times now. Well, there's a thing about um, rejuvenation, anti-aging medicine that has a, um, what they call, as you get older, you get these methylated markers, marks that come from methylation. Methylation is like a little cap that turns off various genes. And so as you get older, you get more of these little caps put on more and more genes. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but they can count it. And there's an actual thing called Horvath's clock. And Dr. Horvath, PhD doctor, I believe in Stanford, Stanford, and um, came up with, well, this is a way to measure the aging process. You know, are you, what's your biologic age and so on. They found that you can actually reverse some of that. In other words, you can decrease the number of those methylated markers. And so that's where it comes into the ketogenic diet could be, and, and by the way, until there's 10 or 15 or 100 studies, nobody can say it is for sure, um, removes or have fewer of these methylated markers. And therefore, there's a degree of anti-aging or rejuvenative process going on, taking out your senescent cells and so on, um, increasing your autophagy you know, breaking down the cells that aren't working well. So pretty interesting, huh? So the, so being fat adapted, ketogenic diet, um, we'll say makes your methylation from what we know so far in this one study, um, more effective for you. And that potentially could decrease the number of these methylation markers, uh, according to Horvath's clock. So there's a lot of little 
And all this is in the last five years. So this is all pretty new, all pretty exciting. I think being fat adapted is absolutely the way to go. Drop your carbs later on, you know, drop your fats and, and enjoy your life. Uh, but it's going to take a while and some learning to get there. I don't think, I think some people really need to be coddled and they need to have all this lab stuff. And others, you know, uh, if they never really had much problems in their life, snap your fingers and they just go and they get benefits. But don't, if you have troubles, don't worry about it. We all have troubles. It just need a little more work and a little more coaching, if you will. Okay. Don't, don't feel bad that it's not a race. You know, we're all working on ourselves. Okay. So that was a long winded talk, but I hope you enjoyed it and talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have. And so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, and epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto. And so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results. And we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.